Why did the United States begin increasing military force in Vietnam in 1965 and 1966? What actions did the Army take to counter Viet Cong and North Vietnamese aggression? How was the air mobile concept developed? For answers to these questions and more insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. This episode is part two of a five-part series on the Vietnam War, where we are discussing the Army activities in Vietnam in the years of 1965 and 1966. Joining me to continue leading us through this discussion is Vietnam War historian, Dr. Eric B. Villard. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining me again. Great to be back again. So just a reminder, Dr. Villard is the digital military historian for the United States Army Center of Military History and one of the Army's leading Vietnam War historians. He wrote a volume in one of the U.S. Army combat operations in the Vietnam War series titled Staying the Course, October 1967 to September 1968, which was published in December of 2017. He's currently working on the next book in that series, covering October 1968 to December 1969. And outside of the Center of Military History, Dr. Villard is also the founder of the Vietnam War History Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that has over 44,000 members on its Facebook group. He's also appeared as a historical advisor and analyst on many documentary projects, including, and I think this is impressive, uh, to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick for their Vietnam War documentary series. Am I missing anything uh, that you really want me to highlight? No, I, I think, uh, again, I'm involved in anything Vietnam War. I try to help the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Foundation, uh, try to help the, uh, you know, looking for the MIA POWs, uh, helping veterans locally. Just It's just become a, a, a personal uh a commitment of mine. So whenever I can sit down and talk about the Vietnam War, I'm always happy to do it. Well, then this podcast is just uh, perfect for you. Uh, for me too, this is fascinating. And I know this is be uh, um, fascinating for our audience. So let's just jump right back into it. Uh, I want to pick up the discussion from where we left off in the last episode, which was that was at the end of 1964. So the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, pretty much gave Johnson, the Johnson administration, a blank check to increase numbers of military forces. And we saw growing attacks by the Viet Cong. So set the stage for me. It's the uh, early 1965, what's taking place with the army on the ground? So at this stage, uh, the MACV, which is the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, it's a joint headquarters led by General William Westmoreland. He oversees all the U.S. military personnel. There's about 23,000 at this point, and about 17,000 of them are Army. Um, About 15,000 advisors and then 1,200 or 1,500 special forces. So the numbers have grown considerably in the past few years. However, 
the situation in South Vietnam keeps getting worse. And this is the dilemma. You know, the end of 64, early 65, despite the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, despite the threats of Johnson of bombing North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong keep uh, to their strategy. The, the leaders in Hanoi, and there's about a dozen of them, I just make this point, there's the Politburo. These are the people who actually make all the important decisions. Ho Chi Minh, at this point, he's an old sick man. He's basically retired. But the, the people that are actually running the show, folks like Le Zuan and others, what they want to do is they want to force a conclusion of the war. They want to take over Saigon and the government before the Americans decide to get involved in a big way. So the time is click, uh, the clock is ticking. Right. In fact, the Gulf of Tonkin causes a bit of a problem because those North Vietnamese patrol boats that attacked the Americans on the second, that was a local commander. That was not orders oh. from Hanoi. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. a local commander. So now there's, again, this kind of collision course. Um, what the communists want to do basically is muster their power and take Saigon, which is the heart of South mm-hmm. Vietnam, in the next six months. That's their objective. So where are U.S. forces, and specifically the army at that time, were well, they thing, focused around Saigon? Well, Saigon, of course, is the most important city in, in the country. In, in a country of about 16 million people, um, over 2 million live in the capital. So it is the industrial heartland, it's the political heartland, the military, most important by far. Um, But the American advisors are spread out really all over the country. There's 44 provinces, you know, throughout South Vietnam. And and so at this point, they're pretty much everywhere. And this leads us to the next confrontation point. And before we get to that, so which would probably lead into this next confrontation, what was Westmoreland's strategy? Well, Westmoreland's strategy at this point, again, as head of MACV, he had a mission to advise and assist. I mean, the South Vietnamese is a sovereign nation. They have their own military. Westmoreland does not have the authority or the power to tell them what to do. He also doesn't have, he has no authority to, for example, cross a border into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. So his mission is to try to help the South Vietnamese train, equip, and better deal with the enemy that they're facing. In some cases, it's by direct training. In other cases, is it, for example, by bringing in U.S. helicopters to fly South Vietnamese forces to combat zones. But again, the Americans at this point are still not directly engaged in combat, but they are everywhere. Right. And are they being engaged by uh, they are being North fired upon or the Viet Cong? They are being fired upon. Um, again, in most cases, I'm not sure that the Viet Cong necessarily know the Americans are there. Although, again, if you had an American advisor on an infantry patrol, he stands usually just stands a good <laughs> right. six, eight, you know, inches taller. So I'm sure some of them did. Um, but at this point, again, what the communists want to do is basically. Uh, win this war quickly before the Americans decide to to get involved. And you can understand that. Um, And before we get on to the next battles, um, because I think this is important to note as we go throughout these episodes, what was the morale, well, the feelings of the American people at this time? Did they support the war? Were they against it? Well, at this point, Vietnam is pretty much off the radar. I mean, still. Uh, There are a lot of trouble spots in the world. Uh, again, just a couple of years ago, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. 
right? We had, you know, problems in Berlin, problems on in the Middle East, problems all around the world. So in terms of the popular awareness of what's going on in Vietnam, it's it's hardly a blip. And again, those 23,000 American advisors, these are all basically professional soldiers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, public awareness. The the one glimmer is on some campuses, some university campuses, there is the beginning of discussions and and in some cases even sit-down protests where they say, okay, we're, you know, instead of having class today – Let's all go in the in, in the quad and sit down and 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 talk about this thing because it could get worse. But still, otherwise, no, almost off the radar. So now back in Vietnam, um, how's the army getting more involved? Where did the first attacks or battles? Well, the thing that really uh, um, trips the triggers, so to speak, is an attack on seven February. Uh, Viet Cong troops of 65, 65, uh, launched a sapper and mortar attack against an American airfield. Now a sapper attack is basically a commando raid. So there's an American airfield up in the central highlands, uh, of Vietnam, Camp Holloway. And the Viet Cong attacked this installation where there are a lot of planes and stuff. Eight Americans are killed. Over 120 are wounded, and about 25 planes are damaged or destroyed. So this is a pretty significant attack. And it does seem to be targeting the Americans, right? And so this is now, uh, this presents Johnson with a dilemma. You know, was this a deliberate provocation? Are the communists basically poking a finger in his eye and saying, look, there's nothing you can do about it. That's the way he uh, interprets it. That's the way Westmoreland interprets it um, and all the other senior commanders. So after that attack, things begin to move very quickly. Johnson and Westmoreland realize with so many American advisors spread out across the country, with things getting worse, we're going to have to do something more. And that means sending conventional troops. And that's really a, a fateful moment, um, March of 1965 where the decision is we are going to send the first U.S. combat troops. And, and how were those decided? Is, is it units that they were, they were just ready to deploy? Right. Or were they units that were specialized in, in counterinsurgency or jungle warfare? Well, at the time, uh, there were certain units that were designated as sort of the ready reserve for a particular area of the world. So in the Pacific, like the Marines, um, their 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 Ninth Marine Regiment um, had you know the capability was was already well prepared, and so it was in a good position. And Marines have base on Okinawa, which is not that far away, right? So they could land, and indeed they do. They land at Danang, which is the next biggest city. It's up in the northern part of the country, and there's a big, big jet airfield at this point there's only really three jet airfields in all of south vietnam uh one in saigon one in denang and another one close to saigon so you'd land those marines at the airport because you don't want more american planes destroyed and then you send an american unit this is the 173rd airborne brigade so this is the army this This is is the the army army right a paratrooper brigade and again they are where did they come from 
Well, the 173rd is at this point is designated as a Pacific Theater Reserve. They're the fire brigade. Like if something happens, you send these folks first. So they are prepared. Uh, they have a distinguished history going back, you know, to, to World War II. These were the uh, some of the folks who parachuted on the island of Corregidor um, during retaking in the Philippines. And if you know how big Corregidor is, it's not big. It's very rocky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so these are tough guys. So you send in the 173rd, and they go protect the other big airfield, which is Benoit near Saigon. So that's the first decision is send these two units in. And again, initially it's protection, protection of planes. But very quickly, General Westmoreland realizes you can't just sit around on an air base, which are big in the, in the first place, and protect them. You need to go out and actually start doing missions in the area. And, and what was the focus of the missions? Were they search and destroy? Well, these, the, the search and destroy... Yes. Um, there's a number of military terms for the different operations, but search and destroy or reconnaissance and force would be the most accurate descriptions. Mm -hmm. In other words, like a show of force too. Hey, we're here. You know, you guys is, better leave. It is. Um, you are kind of announcing yourself to the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. saying, look, um, we're here. We're prepared. You know, we're ready to tangle. So think twice about, you know, attacking us unless you're really prepared for yeah. the consequences. And what were the numbers? So the 173rd goes from the Army. We've got Marines. Um, pretty, initially pretty small. How quickly small did other units deploy? Because a brigade uh, a brigade size is around three to 4,000 soldiers, right? Um, and a Marine regiment, it's, it's similar. So we're mm -hmm. talking pretty small initially. But, and here's the, here's the key, as he sends these two units... Johnson also begins bombing North Vietnam. All right. Is this part of Rolling Thunder? Operation Rolling Thunder. Can you describe what that is? Rolling Thunder is a bombing campaign against North Vietnam that's carried out by either U.S. Navy aircraft on aircraft carriers in the Gulf of Tonkin or, or in the South China Sea, I should say, and U.S. Air Force aircraft uh, mostly based in Thailand which is an ally of ours. Mm -hmm. But again, the Marines, they have this air base at Da Nang. They can fly some of those missions. So it is designed to ratchet pressure up on North Vietnam is controlled by the White House, It's not controlled by Westmoreland. Right. This is a sort of a diplomatic thing that's going on. Mm -hmm. But you need to have enough soldiers to protect the plane. So by the midsummer, Westmoreland says, look, I need more. I need 34 more combat battalions. So Johnson wow. agrees to do this. So by the end of summer, there are, you know, approaching 180,000 U.S. troops now headed towards South Vietnam. Wow. And are they all coming from continental U.S. or are they coming from Hawaii or Japan? Where are they coming the, from? A variety of places. Um, there's um, some elements like the 25th Infantry Division, which is based in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, they send a brigade. Uh, the first cavalry division uh, begins to deploy. Uh, interesting story there. It used to be the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. We are now reactivating oh, yeah. the 11th Airborne. But in uh, the early 60s, they took that division, 
put it down at Fort Benning, and began experimenting with helicopters. So by 65, they converted this, this unit. It is now the first of its kind, a whole division based around helicopters, over 450 helicopters. And is this when the term air mobile first Air mobility, when they're, mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're experimenting with this concept. Again, initially, this was designed to fight the Soviets in Europe. Originally, that was the concept. But now you have this war in Southeast Asia, perfect opportunity to employ them. Let's see how they do. So you send the 1st Air Cavalry Division, you send some other units, but these are generally the most ready units that are ready to go. And now how are our, our weapons? Is the M-16 now introduced? The M-16, some units, um, for example, the 1st uh, Cavalry Division, which expects to see a lot of fighting, does go over with the early model M-16. Uh, other units like the uh, 1st Infantry Division uh, d- mostly deploys with the older M14, mm-hmm. which is heavier, fires a heavier bullet. It's more accurate, but it those few extra pounds w- mm-hmm. can really add up, and you can't carry as much ammo. So the M16 is a lighter weapon uh, designed for this new combat environment, and yes, the 1st Cav are carrying these new M16s. So then um, between the spring... And early fall of 65, uh, before we get into right. the Central Highlands, are there any significant battles uh, that take place now that we have so many more troops on the ground? Uh, it's, it's, it's a gradual thing. Like the 173rd um, Airborne Brigades, this, they have nicknames, the Sky Soldiers. Um, and they go to the area around Saigon. So they actually do begin some operations north of Saigon in some of these big jungle areas where the communists have their base camps. Uh, and, and some of their first operations, they begin working with the Australians. Because the Australians, uh, very early on, they send several, well, uh, several battalions, what ends up being kind of a, a brigade. Some of them are New Zealanders, but mostly Australians. So the Aussies and the 173rd are now doing these Limited operations. It's really more just kind of feeling out the terrain. And who are they fighting? Is it mainly Viet Cong? It's a mix. Uh, In places like Three Corps, which is the area around Saigon, you have it all. You have the local guerrilla. Mm -hmm. You have the district-level Viet Cong guy who has a little bit of training, maybe still using a weapon from World War II, but you also have those hardcore Viet Cong, in some cases, North Vietnamese soldiers mm-hmm. who are armed with the best Soviet and Chinese weapons. So it kind of depends on who you run into. Right. And because I know as we get into the Central Highlands and then uh, Yad Drang, right. um, my understanding is that's the first time where the North Vietnamese Army and the U.S. Army really came head to head. Right. That's the first big toe-to-toe clash. I think this 173rd, they do have skirmishes with uh, some of these more experienced, you know, Viet Cong troops, but it's not a really a big knockdown, drag out battle. That doesn't happen until um, the uh, the fall in the Central Highlands. Right. So let's let's talk about it. let's let's pivot over then, um, because we talked briefly about air mo uh, air mobility, mm-hmm. um, and this is going to play a significant role because they uh, uh, seven, you said first calf. First, well, cav- first, first, seventh cav. Uh, first cavalry division mm-hmm. is is the official title. Um, sometimes you'll see it in parentheses. It'll say air mobile. Right. There was, I mean, there was a first cavalry division 
back in the day that actually used horses. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is the yeah, first cavalry division air mobile. Well, as, as um, I think pointed out, you know, uh, in, in the film We Were Soldiers that covers yeah. this, you know, that we're replacing horses with these new helicopters. Right. Of course, they're the uh, um, UH-1 Hueys. Right. That is the workhorse, and, and, and that's that, that's critical because it is a newer kind of helicopter with a turbine engine, which is more powerful than the old piston ones, you know, the, the ones in Korea, and even the, a, a lot of the ones the Marines are using. And poor Marines, they often get these hand-me-downs, <laughs> right? Right. But the Huey is a real workhorse, um, very versatile. It can carry up to eight soldiers. It can be a gunship. It can be a medical evacuation. It, it can be a lot of things. And uh, commanders like Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore um, really prepared. He, he anticipated how to use these, how, how to get uh, troops in and out, supplies in and out at, at extended distances that right. we probably weren't used to in the past. Um, so let, let's talk through what was the mission that brought us into the Adrang Valley? So the First Cavalry Division um, begins, you know, landing on the Central Coast, you know, around September, and they have troops from the 101st who, who basically kind of shepherd them to their new home, this place called On K, uh, later known as Camp Radcliffe after a, a soldier who was killed. But On K, it's on the plateau, um, this massive area where you can have that many helicopters. But the idea is from there, you can range over hundreds of kilometers all the way to the border of Laos and Cambodia. And this is mountainous terrain. This is deep forests. Um, you can't, there aren't many roads. You can't rely on them. So only something like the helicopter and only something like the 1st Cavalry Division can defeat the tyranny of the terrain by using the mobility. And then, uh, so this specific mission, <clears throat> Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore is given a mission to go right. in. And um, what was the purpose of that mission? So um, the thing that, t that, that set it off uh, is in the middle of October, North Vietnamese troops attack one of these special forces camps, the Play Me camp. As I mentioned, U.S. special forces are in these locations along the border, up and down the interior. And so they attack this one uh, special Forces Camp. It's an old tactic. In the past, this is what they do. They attack the camp, and then they set up an ambush for the South Vietnamese troops who come up the one road. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and then attack them. Well, now you've got the first cav. Different story. Suddenly, Hueys are dropping in behind the North Vietnamese. They go kind of bananas and, <laughs> and flee back towards their original base, this big mountain called the Chupong Massif. Now, Colonel Hal Moore, who's the commander of the 1st Battalion, 7th Cavalry, 3rd Brigade, gets orders to pursue these North Vietnamese elements, find and engage them. So he knows that they're somewhere around this big mountain formation, flies over. There's only a few places in the jungle that have a clearing big enough for helicopters. So he chooses this one location to make his initial assault, and he calls it LZ X-ray. And LZ, landing zone. Landing right. zone X-ray, mm -hmm. exactly. So there's there's definitely some risk there. I mean, you know, he's got some of his artillery set up to support him, but he's going into an area where he doesn't really know a lot. It's uncertain, and he knows that because of the size of the landing zone, which is small, and the distance mm -hmm. involved, 
he's only going to be able to bring in, you know, a relatively small number of troops at any one time. Yeah, it was about 70, I think. Yeah, I mean at, it's, at a it's, time. it's 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 and it's it was a, a 30 minute company. round trip. Exactly. Yeah. So those first few platoons on the ground have got to be able to right. hold that LZ mm-hmm. long enough for the 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 other troops to show up and and reinforce. So there's there's it's it's a very dicey situation. Right. So this is November 14th, November 1965. Yep. So they start going into LZ X-ray right. and, and and what happens? Start landing at first seems fine. Uh they get basically no enemy fire. They fan out through the clearing, start to, you know, explore the woods. Uh a couple of the 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 troopers, cav troopers run across these NVA soldiers, kind of, you know, surprise them, capture them, bring them in, start questioning, you know, Hal Moore is there and Plummer, his, his, his chief NCO are there. They are asking like, what's, and these guys through an interpreter are like, oh, yeah, there are, there's like thousands of NVA soldiers <laughs> right. all around. They, they didn't know where, right. but they're, they are here. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Moore knows he's in for fight pretty soon. Pop, 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 AK-47 fire. Some of his troops in the perimeters, you know, start receiving fire. And it just, from there, it becomes a firestorm. And North Vietnamese troops, knowing the Americans have landed, are now converging from several directions. And it becomes a dogfight. And uh, more, and then Sergeant Major Plumley. Yeah, uh, Plumley. Yep. They, uh, they come to find out that it's... About four times the amount of enemy soldiers? Well, and, and initially, they know that there's the better part of several North Vietnamese regiments mm-hmm. in the air. So, so theoretically, there could be three, four, five thousand enemy soldiers in the general area. Um, and at the time, you know, with the battalion, they've got about 400 people on the ground. Eventually, they would. Eventually, yeah, I mean, cause it's still over, the first, over the first couple hours as they're bringing troops in. Right. But you know the you know his first battalion, the number of people they actually put in the field is a little over four hundred. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it gives you some um, a, a moment of pause. And the question is, you, you still don't know. I fire is increasing. Mm-hmm. They know the North Vietnamese are converging, but there's there's some some real anxiety. It gets worse because some of those American troops who went out to look for the North Vietnamese, this one platoon, for example, gets cut off. And so now they're surrounded. The infamous cutoff platoon. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is where, you know, Hal Moore, I think, you're gonna really rises to the occasion, keeps his cool, keeps those helicopters coming in, uh, bringing more troops. Uh, the helicopter uh, pilots, people like um, Tutal uh, Freeman and 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 um, and uh, Crandall, Crandall, Bruce Crandall, Bruce Crandall right. you know, who later yeah. both receive Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. you know, Keep coming back and f- back yeah. and back, bringing and against, ammunition. Even against, I, I think, some of the orders of, of their Oh, yeah, sometimes folks. there yeah. were times where the, there was so much enemy fire and, you know, peppering their helicopter that they're like, no, no, don't don't even try. And they're like, no, no, we're coming. Yeah, I mean, the heroism from these aviators is just is unbelievable. Uh, a lot of the guys on the ground, I mean, there were several medals of honor issued yes. uh, in, in this battle. Um, so how did this play out now? What, so what uh, happened is, uh, you know, again, the first day and the first evening was, 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 it was really touch and go. There were, there were a few moments where it looked like the North might break through the perimeter. And this is where, uh, you know, Hal Moore really had, had to use all of his wits to 
grab a few people he could find as reserves and then send them to the right place at the right time. Managed to hold off. Um, as, as many of you know, he's joined, you know, early in the battle by a, a UPI, mm-hmm. a journalist, Reporter, right. mm-hmm. Joe Galloway. Right. Uh, young guys like, hey, I, I want to go where the action is. Oh, sh- sure you do. <laughs> yep, I do. So, so he's there mm-hmm. observing this stuff. Um, very, very, uh, you know, uh, unsettled night, a lot of skirmishing. The next day, the 15th, that's really when the enemy tries to overrun the landing zone. And it is just, again, it, it's it's an absolute dogfight. Um, more brings in some more troops from a sister battalion. Finally, in the 16th, the enemy breaks contact. But, I mean, it was... Well, we had to talk about the role of artillery here right. as well and, and the air power that, that they right, were Right, because it in. wasn't just an infantry fight. He, yeah. you know... Hal Moore, as as a part of Doc, an air mobile director, right. mm-hmm. uh, is on the radio. In fact, that's mostly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, if you happen to see his helmet, which is at the... Um, is, that, is that one ben- of our museums? Isn't the, it? The, the, the Infantry Museum at Benning. Mm-hmm. It's on display. You will notice that, he's you know, the cover, the yeah. fabric on one side is worn away. That's because that's where he's always sticking his... His, his, his phone, headset. His, his headset, headset right? right? He's always mm-hmm. pushing it. So he's on the phone. He's calling in airstrikes from jet aircraft, from propeller planes, from helicopter gunships, helping to coordinate all this. At one point, things are so bad, they call it Broken Arrow. And when you want to explain what and that is. And Broken Arrow is basically fire of alarm fire. Everyone drop everything if you're in the air mm-hmm. and come help. So they just sort of stacking up support planes. And, and while these close air support planes were, were delivering their, their payload, and again, these are top-notch pilots. I mean, right. they are dropping these bombs and napalm way closer than Danger doctors close. says. And in fact, it, it, it killed some of the American yeah, troops. Yeah, there was, was some splash, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time this is happening, B-52s are also flying deeper into the enemy's rear, and so there's massive air power, massive artillery. It's not just an infantry fight. This is a combined arms fight. Yeah, I mean, the, they could not have survived without no, that. Uh, that no, there's no way. A- yeah. Absolutely not. Or, or just the artillery. And, and also logistics. Yeah. The folks in the yeah. rear who are getting the ammunition, the bandages, getting that stuff to the fighters, and then these helicopter pilots getting the wounded, the dead on the helicopters, getting them back, and most of them who are wounded, you know, end up being saved because the medical treatment is so good. Right. Yeah. And uh, so just just an amazing battle. Um, when you look at Helmore, um, Sergeant Major Plumley, yep. Crandall, Crandall, it's just um, just so much heroism there. You know, I, I think of our Armory values today and I and, and I think they they displayed every single one of them. Oh, absolutely. So I mean, there's 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 no there's no there's no lack of heroes. And uh, yeah. it, it just it, it's it's. But what I've come to learn about. Hal Moore, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore at yeah. the time. Of course, he would later uh, retire as Lieutenant General. Mm-hmm. Um, was his preparation? He anticipated uh, this. He did his homework. He did it, and I mean, he was a, a, a tactical genius. Yeah, so. and and I actually found the photographs, the aerial photographs that he took flying over uh, for his recon X-ray for his and with his own annotations oh, in red um, pen. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is a guy who, who, who you know, who he, led from the he front. He knew the land. You know, we call it Met-T, right? Yeah. Uh, mission enemy troops, terrain, time. Mm-hmm. But he knew the land. 
and he knew the enemy, and he was able to anticipate their moves. I mean, this is just uh, amazing. Um, so they leave on the 16th. They pull out on the 16th. So they, they – After they the enemy withdraws. The enemy withdraws. I mean, the camp – you know, the, the operation isn't over, but they, they need to skedaddle because they're going to plaster that whole area of B-52s. Um, and unfortunately, this leads to the sort of the second part that is – isn't always talked about, but their sister battalion, the second of the seventh, mm-hmm. they go marching through the jungle because again, there's not too many areas where you have that clearing. Right. So they are marching to this other place called Landing Zone Albany, mm-hmm. where they will be picked up and taken away. Unfortunately, they run into an ambush by one of those NVA units that was out there mm-hmm. looking for the Americans, and and it is uh, it's it, it's an it's brutal, ugly. Yeah. You know, very costly ambush. Right. So again, you know, keep in mind, you know, the, those those brave men, the second battalion, who also fought there. But it uh, it just shows you this is the first clash between professional American Army and North Vietnamese Army troops. And what? So the aftermath of this, what's the significance on um, or the impact on the army, on the media, yeah. on the, um, the perception of the people back home? Well, it's interesting because people. Different people took away different lessons. Um, the Americans, in general, uh, took away the lesson that air mobility works, mm-hmm. right? Even in very difficult situations, helicopters can get through. You know, if you use all your combining arms, you can mm-hmm. you can project power and 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 win on these you know remote battlefields. So that so it was a vindication of air mobility for the Americans. Um, for the North Vietnamese. They saw it as a vindication of their own tactics, which was um, what they called clinging to the belt. So in order to compensate for the fact that the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong did not have an air force, and even though their artillery was was nowhere as good, Mm -hmm. they compensated by getting as close to the American positions as possible Mm -hmm. so that when the Americans fired the artillery, dropped bombs, there was always a danger of hitting the Americans. And so they... North Vietnamese, even though they sustained far more casualties, they came away feeling, yes, mm-hmm. we, we do have the ability to, to fight the Americans. And it, it's interesting with, with those lessons learned for the, the North Vietnamese, uh, we saw some of the same tactics in Iraqi freedom. Oh, uh, in, absolutely. In because they didn't have the air power right. as well. And so they would, they would and, do something and, similar. And these are timeless lessons. I mean, the fact is if you don't have – the advantages of mobility or sensors or firepower, you use what you have. And those things are digging tunnels and foxholes and concealment or getting as close to your opponent as possible to to negate those advantages. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, So now after Yadrang, Mm -hmm. um, let's – there's more deployments coming in. Sure, sure. And, that you know, that's uh, so, the, that's so one of the real now? big fights. Yeah. But by by this point, you know, early '66, you know, um, floodgates are open. So uh, you know, American troops are arriving about as quickly as we can get them over there. And again, should be pointed out that you know, South Vietnam at this point is still a pretty undeveloped country. Okay, um, like I said, there's only three airfields even capable of having jet aircraft. There's only a couple ports that have deep water ports. So there's a lot of infrastructure you need to support an American army. So what the Americans are doing is is putting in troops, combat troops, as fast as they can 
but they're also shoving in a massive amount of combat support and service support troops. So engineers and truck drivers Mm -hmm. and clerks and all the other things you need to sustain an army. So every time a combat unit would go to a new area, they'd be followed by their own sort of army building these big, big American bases at key locations. Mm -hmm. And so this is really sort of the the story of 66. It's the buildup. And where 66, by the end of 66, you have multiple American divisions in what we would call three core and two core. So the middle half of South Vietnam. At this point, there's still only advisors in the de- in the Mekong Delta in the far south, and in I Corps up north, that's still Marine Land. Mm-hmm. So the Marines got their own thing going All up right. there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Army sort of has a stuff in the middle, and um, the soldier, the Mac V, by the end of of sixty six, it's it is headed towards four hundred thousand. Oh wow! So we they are they are going. At That's a, fast a couple clip. hundred thousand in yeah. a, a short Yeah, so you're talking, you know, 1st Infantry Division, 25th Infantry Division, 4th Infantry Division, 199th Infantry Brigade, 196th Infantry Brigade, uh, 101st, 1st Cavalry Division, you know, all these big units. Right. Right. And, and the thing is, you know, it should be, you know, pointed out that, you know, West Merlin, you know, isn't isn't the king of the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he is the head of MACV, a joint command, so he, he ultimately is calling the shots in South Vietnam for the American personnel. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he has a whole staff of advisors, right? He also has to work with the South Vietnamese. It's their country. He has to listen to the president, of course, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of course. Mm-hmm. He has to respond to his boss, who's SINCPAC, who's the Navy Admiral in Hawaii, right? So he just can't just do whatever he wants. Right. And so his priorities are, in this period, get those American troops in, build up those bases, create the capacity to start really putting the hurt on the enemy by 1967. Because he knows, even at this early stage, we won't be there forever. We, we have no intention of being yeah. there forever. But we need to wear down the enemy threat to the point where the South Vietnamese can really start to catch their breath. So that's where he's. That's where his head is at in 1966. And uh, as we leave, uh, get ready to leave this discussion. Uh, were there any uh, in that same time frame where we're uh, we're building our strategy out? But uh, what about the tactics? Are there any updated tactics? Any lessons learned that they're starting to apply and train on? Yes. Um, this is uh, this is again by and large a, a U.S. Army that had been trained and organized, again, principally to fight the Soviets mm-hmm. in Europe. I mean, heavy that, force versus heavy force. Yeah, I mean, and, that's, and that would have been most of the training. So going to Southeast Asia in this new environment, um, they had to make some modifications. Uh, they had to learn some lessons. Uh, for example, a uh, question they had early on was, do we want to bring tanks? And a lot of people said, no, it, you know, the... the, the you know, Southeast Asia, swamps and jungles, it's not a really good place for them. Uh, turns out, actually, yeah, there's a lot of places where you can use them, and they're super effective. So we did, for example, the Army sent several tank battalions. And we're using, so we learned that. Uh, we also learned early the value of reconnaissance. Uh, 
finding the enemy was at least half the battle, right? And there's lots of ways you could do that. You know, signal intercepts with all the, you know, the radio the listening radios. in, mm-hmm. um, capturing prisoners. But one of the things that the Army really seized on um, were basically ground patrols. And this is the yeah. formation of the LERPs, the okay. long-range reconnaissance patrols. These were volunteers from a division or brigade who, you know, volunteered and said, I want to be a part of this special unit that goes on these extended patrols for five days, seven days or whatever, and skulks around the jungle looking for signs of the enemy. Our job is not to go engage them, but we need to find them. Right, yeah. And so this is where this idea quickly spreads throughout the Army, and they start forming these provisional LERP units. Mm -hmm. Later on, they would become codified as rangers. But this is kind of where the rangers are brought back in Mm -hmm. the sense that we know them. But they recognize early on you need these kind of folks. That really brings us towards the end of 1966. And we'll we'll get into 67, 68 in our next discussion, our next podcast. But before we close, you know, it's time for Who A Trivia. Who A Trivia. Who A Trivia. So this is a piece of significant Army trivia that um, uh, that's about this era we're talking about, 65, 66. Something that we, we hope will wow the audience or, hey, maybe help me on a Jeopardy question. Yeah, I'll help, I'll help so you on a Jeopardy. some piece of Army trivia that you can share about this part of the Vietnam War. Well, uh, let me answer this way. Uh, at this point in the Vietnam War, uh, commanders, division commanders, corps commanders could usually choose their own operation names. I mean, nowadays it's oh, really? like resolute boldness and right, it's right. all, yeah, but, but yeah. back then they would, you know, call things that had some bearing or meaning for their division. So like the 25th interdivision from Hawaii would call operations, you know, Mauna Loa, <laughs> or, you know, Waikiki or something. Right. Oh, wow. um, okay. Or you have, you know, some divisions like the 1st Infantry Division, you know, talk about places from Kansas. Because okay. it's Fort Riley, right? Oh, some of these names mm-hmm. is like, oh, okay, that's why. Right. Often the LZs and the fire bases, those were named after wives and girlfriends <laughs> of the commander. So you see a Kate, a Judy, yeah. a mm-hmm. whatever, that's, that's, that's where those funny. names come from. All right. Well, good. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Um, for all of your discussion and insights today about Vietnam War and specifically in 1965-1966. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Vietnam War or Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil where you can access all our publications about Vietnam and uh, they're available as free PDF downloads or you can purchase them from the government printing office. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then please visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, tactics, and lots of HUA trivia. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, 
go to history.army.mil.